Welcome to the Best Science Medicine Podcast, BS without the BS. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 539th episode of the Best Science Medicine Podcast. My name is James McCormack, and I'm a professor with the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of British Columbia. I'm Mike Gallen. I'm a family doctor, the director of practice support at the College of Family Physicians of Canada. I'm also an adjunct professor at the University of Alberta. And uh, we don't have to say it, but I'm going to bring up the P word. Are you okay if I do that? It's ironic that we're going to be talking about P. Yes, with the when, study that we're going to talk about. <laughs> yeah, with the study that we're going to talk <laughs> about, the P word. But the P yeah. word is premium. Premium, not premium. prostate or P. Oh, really? Very, very impressive. Very impressive. Yeah. So what we're going to do in, in, in uh, this premium version is talk to you guys about a, a trial that came out uh, uh, just a, literally uh, a few days ago. And uh, it was a trial that was looking at uh, what do you do in people with prostate cancer? And, I, and I'm sure you know, Mike, it, it's a very tricky discussion and decision-making process. Prostate cancer in particular, yeah. um, obviously for most family docs, we're involved in the screening part of it and then the long-term management we're somewhat involved with. But of course, the, uh, there are those who are involved in the decision-making early on after the diagnosis um, that uh, where we're, where we kind of uh, play a smaller role early in the diagnosis where they're deciding on things like prostatectomy, um, uh, radiotherapy, yeah. all sorts of things. And so that, and that's what we're going to be talking about today, actually. Yeah, no, exactly. And so this was a, I think this is one of these sort of studies that you go, boy, what a lot of work, what a, what a great question that they're, they're trying to answer. So, and part of it has to phrase around, you know, how do we talk even about what, what low risk cancer is? And, I, and yeah. I just looked up some of the criteria for what is now sort of considered low risk cancer if you, from a prostate perspective. And they're talking about a PSA uh, level of less than 10 uh, uh, a, a, a new sort of phrase that they use that in at least new in the last four or five years where they call it the Gleason grade group one. They used to call it a Gleason score and there's different ways of looking at that and they, they in, in low risk is sort of considered a Gleason score of, of six and then there's other clinical ways that they can stage it by what they find on the biopsy. And this study primarily looked at that sort of population. We'll talk specifically the nuances of, but that's what they did. And what they did in this study is that the, these uh, uh, researchers were looking at the impact of what, it, you know, from a screening perspective. And so they took about 82,000 men between the ages of 50 to 69. And this is quite a long time ago because you can imagine, Mike, it takes a long time to see if we have different treatments, if you will, if it's going to make an effect long term. You, you know, this is a decades long type thing. And, and that's in particular why this study is heroic i mean it's yeah, yeah. huge this study any any study that goes on it's hard to get people to stay in it yeah um but to go on this long for for um over a decade yeah impressive yeah so sort of between uh the year just roughly around 2000 up to actually it was 1999 but 2000 up to 2009 so about t 10 year period they screened about 82,000 uh, uh men between the ages of 50 to 69 and in that population, they found about 3% of them 
had what they called localized cancer. And actually, I was into, I thought that might have been a bit higher, Mike, because I've always heard that, you know, that at age 50, 50% of people, you could find some sort of cancer. But well, well yeah. so yeah, this Depends. is always really tricky. But so the, the numbers that I've heard uh, for easy memory's sake is mm-hmm. 10 at 50 and then um, 80 at 80. And, and yeah. then you hear something, you hear something slightly different. And it, it doesn't really matter. Prostate cancer is relatively common. Most of the time, the expression is "you die with it, not yeah. from it." Yeah, exactly. Um, and and but but in younger men, obviously, more of a concern because you're younger, you're going to live longer, and so that cancer is more problematic for you over time. No, exactly. So they had uh, about twenty seven hundred men that they found had cancer, and they were able to randomize uh, just over sixteen hundred of them to three different treatments, active monitoring, and we'll talk about what that means in a minute, a prostatectomy or uh, radiation. And just sort of for a framework, the medium PSA that they had was around four, and the range was anywhere from three to 20, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we go along. Now, there are a variety of different uh, scores or or, uh, risk scores that you can use to say, is this person at low risk or intermediate risk or high risk? And there's a Capra score, D'Amico, Cambridge, and blah, blah, blah. And they actually used all of those to sort of give us a ballpark idea of who these people were. So you you never got your name on one of these scores or any scores, have you? Well, no, I agree, but I... That was your thing for a while. The aminoglycoside, the the McCormick score. Yeah, and and the score is don't use it. I, I wanted my name to be on the on our CVD calculated, but I got voted down by everybody. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so anyway, so that using those systems, ballpark, the p- population that we're talking about would be anywhere from sort of uh, roughly sort of 65 to 70% would be considered low risk, probably around what, 20 to 25% were considered what they called intermediate risk and about anywhere from two to 10%, depending on what criteria you use, would be considered high risk. So this is primarily the lower risk, but it's important to know that it was a, a number of both of these, of the different groups as we go through that. It would be an interesting observation to look at the exact proportion of patients that that if I was low risk in one, could I be high risk in another or... You yeah, know, wouldn't it be interesting? Yeah, I think, yeah, because, you know, they all use different scores. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, interesting, yeah. Before. It's, it's always fascinating. But I, you know, th- there is a fair amount of concurrence, at least in the, you know, the not identifiable patient data. This broad data, the yeah. consistency across the board is kind of two thirds to seventy percent are low risk. Yeah. So, and 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 to, to be honest with you, the scores use some of the same criteria, right? So, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So it's not that they use. Oh, in this one, we use you know the phases of the sun and the moon. Yeah, you know. Um, so anyway, so we've got just you know we've got close to, you know, just over 1,600. So let's say ballpark sort of uh, 1,500 people and uh, roughly just over 500 in each were assigned to either active monitoring or prostatectomy or radiotherapy. And so they, you know, that when you get into a clinical trial, you have to agree that you're going to be randomized. And then uh, what was, I thought what was quite interesting was even though they were assigned to certain things, that didn't necessarily mean they immediately got those Things. And what was interesting, in the people who were assigned to active monitoring, roughly about 85% of them were, were in the active monitoring group. But again, about, what is that, about 16% of them 
even though they were assigned to the active monitoring, still underwent prostatectomy or radiotherapy. Yeah, it's this is a this is common. I remember when uh, the Alhat study was first published, and they were more detailed in revealing what happened to people randomized to whichever one, amlodipine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And they and most of the interventions by the time the trial was over, seventy uh, percent or even less were actually taking the intervention they were randomized to. And I remember most people kind of throwing up their arms like, oh, you can't trust this trial. And I thought, you you clearly haven't read clinical trials. No one, not no one, but it's very rare that everyone sticks to, or even gets close to everyone's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is a good example. Yeah. And so, but so 84% who were assigned active monitoring did it. If you were assigned a prostatectomy, only 72% of those people actually underwent a prostatectomy right away. Uh, some of them, about 70% of them said, no, I'd like active monitoring, <laughs> you know, and, and about 8% had radiotherapy and, and very sort of similar numbers in the radiotherapy group. Uh, about 74% of them actually underwent radiotherapy within a few months. And then, uh, but again, 14% of them also said, wanted to go, uh, underwent active monitoring. So that, that does screw up the randomization, but it's, you know, if you, that, that's just the way these things work, right? Absolutely. This yeah. is, this is so common and you can imagine how this goes. You know, these people were being, they were involved in a study early on. They were, they were identified as having cancer. Then what happened was they were offered to participate in this trial or encouraged likely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they thought, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm happy to do that. They don't really know. They don't know what they're going to get. They don't really know if, what happens when they get one of those things? Yeah. Then it actually happens. They get randomized and they find out that their prostate's going to be removed and they get details on things like, by the way, you may have some sexual dysfunction. You may have urinary difficulties, etc. And they go, yeah, yeah. you know, is active monitoring still open? And, and the other side is the equally likely where they're, you know, they're randomized to active monitoring and they go home and their family says, you know, what in God's name were you thinking? I know, I know exactly. We want, we want you to, you know, take whatever it is to increase your chances. Yeah. Because before this trial, we would assume that this would, uh, you know, so you can understand. These oh, totally. And, and this is the way, this is as clean as research gets, by the well, way. Well, for, 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 this, for this sort of uh, research, yeah, I mean, you can, you can get... You know, you can do a two-week study of do you take a statin or not, and, and everybody could take it. You could do that, but this is so different. Yeah. Yeah. No, no this is totally different. And I still, I think that even that study that you outlined, like, yeah, we've known studies where people, they're three-hour studies and they have drawbacks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so if, if, if you, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate research has to be done on humans. But <laughs> so what was the ongoing evaluation? Well, uh, for the, for the, what they did is for all these people, they measured PSA levels every three months during the first year of the trial, and then every six to twelve months thereafter. And uh, the patients were evaluated annually. And so, uh, in the active monitoring group, and I and I realize that probably active monitoring may be somewhat different nowadays, but in the active monitoring group, an increase of at least fifty percent of the PSA during a twelve-month period or any concern on the part of the patient or clinician triggered a review with management options that included either more monitoring, further testing, or potentially doing some of the the surgery or the radiotherapy. So 
and, and you'll see when we get to the results, a number of people in the active monitoring group eventually did end up getting these treatments. And, and that, again, is exactly the way the real world would work. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. And then uh, in the radical, in, in the, some of the people who had prostatectomy group, uh, they also did to some degree some radiotherapy if they had some what they call positive surgical margins or extra caps, uh, capsular disease or, or so on. And so the, they, what they were doing was sort of, you know, you couldn't just say, no, you have to stay in active treatment and you never get anything. This was a very realistic look at what would happen if you did what they called active monitoring or prostatectomy or radiotherapy. So I think from that perspective, it was a nice way to do that. Or not a nice, it was, a, it was almost a real life thing. Yeah, it's a reasonable way to do it. And you can't, like, you can't randomize someone and if, if recommendations would include something like, you know, like you've been randomized to prostatectomy, but we want to give you some radiotherapy or chemotherapy to decrease the size of the tumor first, you're not going to go, no, we're not going to include that because that wasn't in the title. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, of course you have to follow appropriate protocols. Yeah, no, exactly. And so then what they did is they followed these people for uh, uh, about 15 years. And like I said, this was just published in the New England Journal of Medicine in, in just a, a few weeks ago. And they, the, the outcome that they were looking at was the number of people who uh, died of prostate cancer. And I, I've created a table here of all of the numbers. You, uh, if you can see that table right now, uh, you're on some pretty decent drugs. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you obviously can't see it, but they looked at the number of people who died of prostate cancer. And, and each time I'm just going to go active monitoring, prostatectomy, radiotherapy. So it was 3.1% in the active monitoring, 2.2 in the prostatectomy and 2.9 in the radiotherapy. There was no statistical difference between any of those. So it was somewhere between two to 3% in each one of the group died of prostate cancer and no difference between the groups. So that was, that was their, their main, uh, one of their main outcomes that they were looking at. And that, in my mind, is an important outcome out of thought. Wouldn't you have thought so, Mike? That's, you know, you're talking about people who've been screened and then randomized to that, those three different arms. Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely fair, that outcome. In fact, you know, all of these things are important to look at. Mm-hmm. And, and that would be the key one, um, of course, is dying of prostate cancer. Um, but things like overall mortality, yeah, and which we're going to get to. So yeah. why don't you take us through them, James? Yeah, yeah. And then what they did, and I thought legitimately so, what they did is they said, well, you know, we had sort of the the low risk and the intermediate risk. And so they then actually did a, you know, sort of a subset analysis looking at people. What if their PSA was between three to six? What if their PSA was between six to nine? Uh, and then if, you, if you're talking about the PSA between six to nine, about 20 about 25% of the people had a PSA that high, and then about 10% of them had a PSA above uh, greater than or equal to 10. And they did a, a subset evaluation of that, and they found that really there was no difference in the number of people who died of cancer in when they split it up into those different groups. Because you might worry that if your PSI, PSA is higher, you in theory should be at higher risk of dying. And in fact, that wasn't actually the case in the numbers. No. But again, there was no difference between any of them. And part of the problem there is you're because the numbers because you're dealing with 500 people or so, and then mm-hmm. you're dealing with only 10 percent of them. You're comparing 50 people 
And and they have to. Yeah. The other thing that remember about statistics is that, and I know you do know this, Jimmy, yeah. but I'm just saying for everyone else that that what you're measuring here, what the statistics are being done on, the power of the study is based on the events, not the total number. So if only a few people have the event out of 50, you're actually the statistical power is based on the two or zero yeah. people that have the outcome. So it's really challenging once you start to look at subgroups to tease yeah. out differences. Yeah, and and, and we, we've talked about this probably 538 times in the past when, in the podcast, but it uh, the, the subset analyses are more just to look at and go, huh, isn't that interesting? Is there a signal of any sort? And even a signal yeah, is exactly. not the right way to, but you go, uh, it gives me more comfort that, that I'm not, you're not seeing anything unique about that, those different levels of PSA. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then they also did it based on what they called the, the Gleason grade group, whether it was group one, group two, or group three. And those are, those, this drives me nuts. It used to be a Gleason score of like six or seven or over seven and so on. And then they decided, no, we got to call it a grade group one. And that just, I don't know how anyone memorizes any of these things. But regardless, well, they don't. <laughs> no, I know. Unless I know. you're, unless you're a urologist or yeah. the oncologist that deals with this type, you yeah. don't. But like most docs, they can't keep all the different grading scores of all the different cancers and yeah. all the. Yeah. It's just and especially when they change it. You know, they, they use a yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So 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 you know so you know the the you know, the, the, the Gleason score is based on biopsy samples. I'm not going to go into the details of that, but there are certain ways of scoring these things. And the higher the score, the, in theory, the greater, the, the, the risk. greater the risk of the cancer in theory. So group one is the lowest and then group two and then greater than or equal to group three. Uh, and again, most of these were patients who were considered at, you know, low risk. But again, even when you look at the numbers there, there were no statistical differences. You can sort of see that it looked like the Gleason grades uh, connoted a little bit of a difference in, in overall outcome. Like if you had a, a Gleason grade group uh, a group one score, which is the lowest, your risk over the 15 years was around what, sort of 1% to 2%. But if you had the higher Gleason grade group, the risk was about anywhere from sort of 6 to 8%. So... But there was no difference whether you got active monitoring or prostatectomy or radiotherapy. And then, so there was no difference based on the Gleason grade, which is also interesting uh, to, to know that information. Uh, because I know people, you know, if, if, you, if they say, oh, my PSA was this and it's, oh, that's a, you know, it's greater than 10 or my Gleason score was grade was this. And I was told that th that means this. But even if it did mean something, it didn't show any difference in the outcome. And then they also looked at overall. It's, it's, go, it's sorry, go ahead. Just, yeah, just to clarify, it it shows, for example, not necessarily in the PSA. Well, it didn't show in the PSA, but in yeah. the Gleason score, it did show that as your score got higher, your chance of dying went up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and you indicated that. What it yeah. doesn't show is it doesn't, at least based on this 15-year-old pathway, it doesn't show that it helped delineate a better approach to your management. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, in, and in, fact, in fact, if you look at the, the numbers are so small, but even with the Gleason grade group three, which is the highest one, the lowest number of people who died in that was in the active monitoring group. So, you know, yeah, yeah but the numbers are so small, you can't really, you, you don't say what, I'm not saying they were different. They were, it was the lowest number. And then they looked at, you know, at, at, at overall death and there, you know, there was, 
again, no statistic. It was the, the rate of death was about 21 to 23%. And again, no statistical differences in the overall death. But what's, I think, an important thing there, Mike, is mm-hmm. of the, you know, almost a quarter of the people died, but only maybe not even 10% of them died of prostate cancer. Yeah, one in five to one in four died, but only about yeah. one in 30 died of yeah, prostate cancer. Exactly. Depending on how you look at that. But yeah, the number, if you, if you look at the number who died, um, uh, the, the cause of death was only about, only in about five or 10% of them. Was it due to the, or sorry, about 10 to 15%. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Was yeah. due to the prostate cancer. Most of the deaths were from other causes, which yeah. we alluded to right at the start. You yeah. often with prostate cancer, you're not dying from it. You're dying with it. Um, yeah. It doesn't mean that it's not dangerous. It did kill no. some of these people, which is obviously something that's very concerning and we want to avoid. But it's it's actually still, even in these patients selected in this study because they have prostate cancer, it's 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 one of the lesser causes of their death. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. So there were some statistical differences, and we'll just run those by you. Uh, the number of people who have had metastases was about... in the active monitoring group, but in the prostatectomy and radiotherapy group, it was about 5%. So that was statistically different. So that's about, what, about a 4% absolute increase in the active monitoring group. But remember, there was no difference in the people who died from it. So you can debate the clinical importance of that, but that was one of the statistically uh, significant uh, different uh, findings. It would be interesting to see how that might have manifested in something like a quality of life measure. Yeah, exactly. If the metastasis were, let's say, in your lungs or your bone and causing pain, and mm-hmm. or your lungs and causing shortness of breath, and all of those things, there's, you know, there's, so, so, it's, even though we're not seeing it as a manifestation of increasing mortality, it could still be relevant. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, the number of people who received long-term androgen, and it was about 13% in the active monitoring group, but about seven or eight percent in the other groups. Um, and, and again. They, that was statistically different. I'm not sure the, the necessarily the clinical relevance because a lot of that is a decision based on a variety of different clinical factors. And then I think the the, uh, the main thing, the, the largest difference was obviously in the people who ended up getting what they called radical treatment. And that's because they were randomized to either active monitoring or not. And so when you when you look at the overall the, the number of people who ended up getting a prostatectomy in the prostatectomy group was about 90%. The number of people in the radiotherapy who ended up getting radiotherapy was about 93%. And then in the active monitoring group, obviously, because they're monitoring these guys over a period of time, at some point, a decision was made to have this more radical treatment. And that was about 60%. So if you look at those numbers... If you do active monitoring, about 30% less people over that 15-year period will end up getting the radical treatment. Now, and that obviously was statistically different. It's because of the design of the trial, but it's not like it's 100% in one group and zero in the active monitoring group because they used clinical judgment to make a decision on that. But it just shows you that it, it meant that a number of people were getting a prostatectomy or radiotherapy and they didn't necessarily benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Except the only thing is potentially a reduction yeah. in metastasis. That's yeah, exactly. Really no, exactly. And the energy therapy, but the but of those, yeah, that's that's really all we can say at this point. But yeah. it is 
it is it does point or suggest that that the ideal approach is a more active monitoring approach right. because you you may well end up uh, getting one of these in quotations radical treatments, but um, there's also a fair chunk of people who don't. Yeah, and 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 it, and uh, so and it's hard to know. Did the the sixty percent of people in the active monitoring that got these treatments that the reason that they have the same risk of death? I, it's so difficult to tease out. Well, but, yeah, you um, can't tease that yeah. from this. And 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 then there's a, a a useful figure in 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 the paper that that looks at the probability of undergoing radical intervention, and you can see obviously, you know, immediately in the prostatectomy group or radiotherapy, you know, probably eighty percent of the people ended up getting that, and obviously it didn't, you know, it increased a little bit. It was another ten percent over the period of the fifteen years, but you could see sort of over the fifteen years, it was a fairly linear trend as it goes up. So at about seven years, about what about forty percent of people had gotten in uh, a yeah what they call more radical treatment. more radical yeah. treatment and then at the end it was about sixty percent and so you know it it sort of shows that it sort of delayed it if you will yeah uh, but but it, it, but it, it eliminated yeah. it in thirty percent of people that 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 yeah that's exactly what I was going to say so it's not only that it prevented it in thirty percent it mm-hmm. also uh, delayed it for a number of people yeah. Um, yeah, and so there, there it, it, this is a very interesting study to remind us, uh, and and we used to be more aggressive about a lot of tumors, right? Yeah. Um, and so this is a good reminder of, especially a cancer like prostate cancer that, uh, um, you know, you you don't ne- it isn't necessarily the cause of death for a, a lot of men diagnosed with it. So like you can be a more um, careful approach. Yeah. Uh, than just being very aggressive, um, where some cancers obviously are so, um, uh, the, the cancers themselves are so aggressive, you need to be more aggressive where others, and prostate cancer is the best example I think most of us can think of how you can kind of be a little more thoughtful about how you're going to approach. And I think you're going to take us there because you're going to review a little bit of what the, um, what the editorial said. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, well, we'll get to that talk, but just uh, there, there was a, uh, another paper that uh, uh, was uh, published uh, at, at the same time where they looked at the patient-reported outcomes 12 years after the, what they call the localized prostate cancer treatment, and it was to do with, the, with these people. And they, in that, in, in that paper, they assessed issues around uh, quality of life and, and uh you know, things like urinary leakage and uh, erectile dysfunction. And overall, the quality of life was not different in the quality of life scores that they uh, uh, looked at. What was different, and you would, I mean, this is no, you could have, you could have basically written this paper without actually assessing the patients. But in the first year, which is where the, most of the people in the radiotherapy group and prostatectomy had those treatments in that population, there was about a 10, it depends on what outcome you look at, but about a 10% to 20% absolute increase in the number of people who had uh, urinary issues and uh, erectile issues. So about a 10 to 20% difference in those groups, but that's what, you, that's what you'd have expected anyway, because that's what the yeah, side effects yeah, of radiotherapy and prostatectomy are. Exactly. And we, and we know this, kind of thing yeah. happens we've seen it with the screening studies that follow people after the screening and what happened to them because of it and all of that so yeah we that that wasn't i mean it's important data but it's it 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 wasn't a shocking piece of data no no exactly 
And then uh, from a, a perspective, there was an editorial on this, and there were some useful comments in that. I just thought I'd just sort of say some, a few of the things that were brought up by the, the person who did the editorial is that they, uh, and he, here's what they said, I thought it was interesting, surveillance for lowers prostate cancer is more accepted today than in 1999. Um, and then, but was, he, the person was sensitive to say, although at times patients remain anxious about leaving a cancer untreated, however, he accurately said treating anxiety by removing a prostate often causes larger problems, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah, it's it. You know, and I, who would want that? Who would want to to know that you have a cancer? And it's probably gonna like this is the the stuff yeah. from your doctor, right? Like it's probably gonna be fine. We'll we'll have to see. You know, it, it's just not something that anyone wants to have to think about. No, and 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 then it goes right. Then you have to go that next step back. Should we have screened him in the first place? You know. Oh man. Well, this you know. Hopefully, this this study was through screening. So yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. And then they said, well, you know, he he brought up the comment that that nowadays is that uh, the whole management of uh, sort of sort of not watchful waiting, but doing all that sort of stuff is actually different now. They do, uh, and they talked about some tests that I wasn't all that familiar with. They do some MRI imaging to, to selectively biopsy patients with a certain score of a certain thing and so on. So he, he's suggesting that maybe we can, the act of monitoring, you might be able to more precisely monitor those people. So he said active monitoring is is somewhat different uh, than, than what yeah, we... It's you know. evolving, right? It's been yeah. evolving since 1999. This study, which was an awesome idea... Yeah. But unfortunately, big studies like this with long durations, the science often advances underneath you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And by the time you publish, you, your your results, while still important, aren't quite as relevant as you would have hoped. But that, yeah. that's an ongoing issue with the way science yeah. evolves quickly. Yeah. Or, or but, practice but, Yeah. But his bottom line was that this the trial was called Protect. I don't think I actually mentioned that. He said... Even so, the results of this trial provide valuable data informed decision making in a large group of men with lower intermediate risk prostate cancer. And I think it really does. I mean, it, it's, well, it, it, it absolutely does. Yeah. I mean, it's not the definitive study, but it certainly is an impressive oh, piece of work. It's a very impressive piece of work. And if you think about what the editorial said, and if we imagine that, you know, there's biases in, in all of this extra imaging and everything. But if yeah, you yeah. if you can get past those and remember that it almost certainly our management, our, you know, active kind of um, surveillance is better now than it was then. Yeah. So at, at its worst, it was showing only marginal effects in a few outcomes. Yeah, yeah. It might have been worse in like metastases and things like that, but not death or, or that kind of thing. Yeah. And at the same time, causing harm for even a higher number of patients. No, exactly. If you take, if, so if you say to yourself, okay, that's how good it was then, and we know that we're better now, or we're almost sure we're better. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, then, the, then the answer is this is very reassuring. Yeah, no, exactly. Because no, I, our active monitoring is better now than it was then. So we're, it, it could only, the, the numbers could only be more in favor of a trial that, to me, would suggest for most patients, active monitoring is the better choice. No, no, no. I think I think you're totally right. And I think one of the key, one of the useful pieces of information is that 
you know, the, 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 the outcomes that we looked at, what I would so much encourage, and we, you know, we've been encouraging this for years, is that rather than telling people, you know, that a, a PSA of this is low risk and intermediate risk and blah, 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 this uh, really gives you very good data. Say, if your PSA is this, we know, we know that, roughly speaking, your chance of dying of prostate cancer is X percent. Ballpark. It's about 3% for most yeah, of them, right? It's exactly. Yeah. For almost for whatever the PSA. And then maybe there's a little bit of a better, better uh, I'm probably going to use the wrong word, gradation <laughs> for uh, using the, you know, the, the, the Gleason it, it, score. It defines, it defines risk better, right? It seems yeah, to define. Uh, you know, it's, instead of being at a, a one, you know, a sort of a one to 2% risk uh, with a Gleason score of six. I and mean, that's, I think what people are a little bit more familiar with. If the score is of a, of seven to 10, their risk over 15 years is somewhere around, you know, between six and 8%. And if you know yeah. those numbers, it really helps to have that discussion because, you know, if you say, well, your, you know, your, your, your Gleason score is this and you're in the group three. And I know there's another bunch of Gleason great groups, but, um, it just helps inform the person. And I think, I think these numbers are very useful, should be very useful in a discussion around this topic. So, uh, Anything else you'd like to bring up on that? Are you going to no, you, immediately? Uh, you're not going to go get a, a rectal exam because of this. No, I'm just, not going to. I'm not going to go get screened for prostate cancer. We don't really do rectal exams anymore for screening. No, I know. For prostate I know. Cancer, no, but I we know. do do PSA. <laughs> not we do, but there are people doing PSAs. It's not a big thing in Canada, but some yeah, patients yeah. do still have that. Um, yeah. But but yeah, no. I think this is a good. This was a good study, and it just reminds us that. Uh, if active monitoring was good in this study, it's likely even better now. So it's fair. No, it's no, fair. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and I think, uh, so a, a couple of other things, uh, that we'll add into the end of this, uh, we're doing our annual evidence course in Vancouver, uh, May 12th and May 13th, uh, coming up. We've just got a few more, uh, hopefully we'll have a few more live spots. We're getting, I think we've only got about 15 left. At least the last time I looked in that, that, that may be going pretty quickly. Obviously, we're going to live stream it, so there's probably unlimited number of people who can come and uh, come and watch that. Um, and one of the topics, we are going to devote a fair amount of time to the whole issue of, of screening. And we're going to do a, a really nice session on this, not just for prostate cancer, but for a variety of things. And we're going to try and give you guys the numbers that are associated with this so you can have those, those conversations. And uh, the person, Jen Potter, who Mike, you know very well, is going to be doing that. And yes. She's great at, great at putting, she's very thoughtful and puts all these things into a very, we'll be able to put this into a very nice package for you guys. So we'd encourage you to go look at that. It's Our website is Heck Talks, or just even type in the meme conference, meme medical conference, and you'll, you'll go to that site. Anything else, Mike? No, that's all. Just I'll mention really quickly, um, CFPC Learn, if you've yeah. enjoyed the podcast, and just remember that you could join CFPC Learn and get premium podcasts. You also get uh, certified credits for these podcasts as well as many others. So uh, please check out CFPC Learn if you get a chance. Great. So I think we'll just leave it at that. So thanks as always for listening. Talk to you later. Uh-huh.